against the foundation of our basic practice of presence. We've been looking today at the natural changing nature of the the taste or the flavour of experience. Sometimes pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. And of course each experience doesn't have an inherent quality. It may be there are moments today where the warmth of the sun felt very pleasant. Then the day went on and got hotter and hotter. Now in the evening the meditation hall is rather hot. And for some at least maybe the pleasant has by itself turned into the unpleasant. That quality, the changing feeling tone, the changing affect of experience is referred to in Pali, in the the language the Buddha spoke, as Vedana. Vedana. And I'd like to just uh, offer some reflections on living with Vedana. Generally, the relationship we grow up with, the relationship we get accustomed to, and the relationship that is as far as the vast majority of human beings ever get to with Vedana, is basically we know what we like, and we like it, and we want it, and we do whatever we can to get it, have it, keep it. We know what we don't like, and we don't like it. And we do whatever we can to avoid it, uh, get rid of it, uh, not have to uh, be with it. And when neither of those is particularly impinging on us, when things are neutral, then we tend to either space out, we go vague, or we go sleepy, or we roam around restlessly looking for something ideally pleasant to get hold of. But actually, if we look carefully, often we'll even rather find something unpleasant to engage our familiar reactivity. Oh, poor me, why is it like this? You know? We kind of like that bit of drama more than the staying with the neutral. And it seems at first glance that that's, that's inevitable. That well, what other way could there be of being with life? It's important, I think, not to underestimate just how much we like the pleasant. Which, of course, is completely natural. We like the pleasant, that bit's natural. We don't like the unpleasant, that bit's natural. But to see actually how much of our identity how much, maybe not too strong a word, how much desperation even there can be in having to get and have what I want, what I like, and having to avoid and get rid of what I don't like. And sometimes we can manage to do that, and sometimes we can't. 
the unpleasantness, particularly of, well, the three highlights of unpleasantness that the Buddha points to, aging, sickness and death. Good luck avoiding any of those three. As well as the general uh, inconveniences, the ways life doesn't accord with our wishes in various ways. I said this morning how, as our practice deepens, increasingly we're less concerned with... It doesn't mean that we lose our preferences for what we find pleasant, or uh, that we stop disliking what we find unpleasant, but that increasingly we're more interested not in which flavour I'm getting right now, but more interested in what's its nature? How can I meet it? What will allow me to abide freely with this inevitable fluid changing flavours of life. Last week I spent a few days with my 17-year-old son, with our 17-year-old son, at a Buddhist monastery in, uh, in England. And uh, Buddhist monasteries tend to be, particularly in the Theravadan tradition, where, uh, where we were, these kind of tend to be the boot camps of a certain rigor around Vedana, around this changing flavors. A certain willingness that's built into the lifestyle and the rhythms of the day and the vows of the monks that's really dedicated to giving up the vast, vast majority of any personal choice around what one would like to experience or what one would not like to experience. And going along with what one's invited to experience by life as it unfolds and by the certain training discipline that the monks undertake and by the inevitable joy and challenge of living in community. And the abbot of that monastery, who's uh, become a rather dear friend who I've known for many years, and, and one of my teachers as well, uh, kind of kindly made some time to spend with uh, Narayan, my son, and me, and uh, in conversation and in walking around the monastery together. And at one point we saw a tarpaulin that had been a tarpaulin bash in a bash that had been hung mysteriously in the trees. And Bhante said, oh, "I wonder what's happening behind that tarpaulin." And uh, actually, there was a Zen monk living in a caravan behind the tarpaulin. So the Zen monk was staying for for the the, the uh, three month summer period when Buddhist monks take a vow to stay in one place. So the Ajahn walked across to look across the tarpaulin. Ah, oh, yes, that's where the Zen monks staying, and walked back. And as he walked back, I noticed that he'd walked with his bare feet 
and I mean, he had some sandals, but bare feet. He'd walk straight through a patch of nettles, des ortilles, to look at the top, and then walk back through a patch of nettles. <laughs> I said, uh, oh, Bante. Bante is like an affectionate and respectful uh, way to address a monk. Bante, is that one of your siddhis? Siddhis means um, uh, the kind of the psychic powers or the mastery over various elements of experience that can develop through intensive meditation. And this is a monk who's done some really hardcore meditation, like nine months vow not to lie down for nine months. Right. For example, so one doesn't one doesn't know what can imagine what kind of cities may have developed. So he said, Bhante, is that one of your cities to be impervious to nettles? And he looked down at his feet, and he said, Vedana doesn't last long. Vedana, this, this, this changing fluid nature of experience, sometimes pleasant, sometimes unpleasant. What, uh, in other words, what's the, what am I going to do? Am I going to freak out about nettle sting? Or am I going to sense it, feel it, receive it through the wisdom eye, we might say? Through that recognition, oh yes, tingle heat, some discomfort, and already, actually, even in its first uh, irritating appearance, already on its way to coolness, to fading. But in the nettle sting itself is the pointing to the peace into which that Vedana fades, into which all experience fades. And there was a kind of uh, lightness and beauty and graciousness with which he says, Oh, Vedana doesn't last long. That's the way those monks roll. <laughs> we continued our work together. And uh, in and conversation... And as we went around, uh, Ajahn was taking time to just to really to really notice the various trees that had been planted recently in the monastery, to pay attention sometimes when uh, um, a weed was choking something or when something needed a little clearing in the forest. And with a sense of, uh, it seemed like, both of greeting and uh, silently, and a blessing the plants and the various uh, uh, sights and appearances as we walked around the monastery. And there's a, a long history in Buddhist monasteries, of a, of a particularly with the, the monks, of a, a particular kind of intimacy with and love for trees. The monks talk about there's being a forest tradition, living in the forest. In Thailand, where that uh, tradition comes from, the monks would ordain 
the trees, would make the trees into monks and hang monks' robes on the trees to stop the trees from being cut down. Because when the local loggers would see that the tree had become a monk, they didn't dare to cut it down anymore. And there's uh, much talk of, uh, the, of spirits and uh, celestial beings and beneficial forces abiding in the trees, which might seem appealing and romantic and beautiful to us, or might seem just a little superstitious and strange to us. I don't know. But it's maybe nevertheless true or tangible, sometimes in the presence of trees. Oh, a kind of gladness of heart that comes to us. The contemplation of trees, you know, and the way that trees actually express. I realize I'm going off on a side uh, tangent here to talking about Vedana, but let's see where it goes. The trees often express, actually, much of those four qualities of awareness that I've been emphasizing in the posture. The rootedness of trees. The uprightness of trees. The receptivity of trees. You live in a place with a tree through different seasons and you see the kind of equanimity of trees. Standing in the heat of summer, standing in the cold of winter, standing in the rain of spring, standing in the the loss of their leaves in the autumn in rather a kind of steady and inspiring way and also the ease and not making a fuss trees don't make a fuss And when when the mind or heart is attuned in that way to the natural world, for example, like uh, our environment here, we start to just naturally sometimes absorb a perspective where my pleasure right now or my discomfort right now isn't maybe the whole story. We start to sense a larger perspective in which, oh, there's a whole world here. In this case, a world that's greening and growing. We start to sense and we start to trust something about life's naturalness, something about life's rootedness, something about life's allowing of itself. Something in that, that, that actually nourishes the heart, that relieves the heart. It's very hard to receive that kind of nourishment and relief when we're, when we're very tied up with what I want, what I like, what I need. And there's a certain irony that, of course, meditation we might describe this practice as a way to a happiness beyond Vedana. That's why we're exploring Vedana, connecting with Vedana, allowing the passage of Vedana. And yet, the irony being how easily 
our experience, based on our familiar patterns, can be all about me and my meditation and my success, my failure, my pleasure, my discomfort. So, our practice invites us, an environment like this invites us, to listen to a larger field than the field of our preferences. To listen to a larger field of experience than the rather narrow, rather tight field of our personal preferences. Often, there's not much space in our life. Most people don't make much space in their lives for listening beyond personal preference. And in our cultural situation, probably most of us, all of us maybe, live in a pretty comfortable world. We certainly live in a world where we have much, much, much greater possibility than most human beings have ever had before us, and actually much greater than many human beings, than actually the majority of human beings even today in the world have, to gratify our love of the pleasant and to avoid our dislike of the uncomfortable. And you can, of course, you don't need me to tell you the various sophisticated ways we manage to do that. We've got the, the three secular jewels of the TV, the fridge, and the bar. And the three altars that we worship uh, at. Right? Some discomfort, or I take refuge in the fridge. Some uh, uh, neutral, don't know what to do, uh, distracted, or I take refuge in the TV. Something I don't want to be with, I take refuge at the bar. And so, when we come to an environment like this, when we come to a... uh, I'm trying to avoid this word retreat, right? So when we come to a practice intensive like this, one of the blessings, and it doesn't always feel like a blessing, sometimes it feels like a struggle, sometimes it maybe feels like a curse, but actually one of the blessings of an environment like this in a sort of, in a, uh, in a microcosm of that which is Uh, embodied so inspiringly by the monastic's life, we find ourselves in an environment where we're invited to put aside much of our personal preference. We're invited into the blessing of not having to decide what I want to eat, when I want to eat. The blessing of not having to decide what I want to do, when I want to do it. The blessing of having to put aside a lot of our duties and details and distractions that we often seek. 
And as I say, that sometimes doesn't feel like a blessing. But we're invited, if we're looking for happiness that's not dependent on the unreliable flow of uh, pleasant and unpleasant experience, we're invited to see if we can feel it as such, as a blessing. And it so happens, and you don't have to take my word for it, but just to really see for yourself. But it so happens that the, le- the, least, the less concerned I am with how pleasant my experience is, the less I'm grasping to get what I like and what I want, the more pleasant experience, when it does arise, actually feels like a blessing. A certain gratitude and wonder wells up in us. Oh, what good fortune to be here, to be fed, to be alive. We find ourselves kind of living in what increasingly looks and feels like a blessing field. About a long time ago now, about 20 years ago, it was like my last, uh, when my daughter, when our daughter was first born, it was kind of my last uh, sort of taste of the renunciate wandering life before settling down for 20 years to what the Buddha called the confined and dusty life of the householder. I spent a couple of uh, months uh, on uh, pilgrimage, uh, walking in the in the Himalayas, um, and we didn't. Uh, two of us walking. We didn't carry any food with us. Uh, actually, we carried alfalfa sprouts, you know, grain de luzerne, in in stockings that we could dip in the stream, whiz around to dry, and then they drain. So a little bit of growing. So we had always some fresh green stuff with us. And when it was very cold, in the night time in the high Himalayas, and these sprouts wouldn't grow, we'd, we would tie them in our jackets around our arms. They would keep warm under there. <laughs> and then we'd share our sprouts. With <laughs> anyway, too much information. <laughs> but apart from that, we, we would... Uh, if we were not near somewhere with human habitation, then we didn't eat that day. And if we were near somewhere with human habitation, we would, uh, we were, you know, dressed in the, the, the garb of the pilgrim, if you like, orange lungi. We both had long dreadlocks at that time tied up on our heads. And we would, when it came to sunset, we would sit at the, the temple, the mountain temples always set just a little outside the village, and we would sit and meditate for an hour or so. And m- m- most of the time, when we'd come to the end of our meditation and open the eyes, food would be there. Mm, village people would see us uh, arrive, they'd see that we were pilgrims, they'd see us uh, meditating, oh, and bring food. And when, wow, one receives the food as a blessing. And the less one's uh, involved in trying to get and have my blessings in a kind of a consumptive way, the more one's struck by the blessing of life. 
as it appears. Which is counterintuitive to us when we're busy, caught in what I want, what I want. But even more counterintuitively, when we're struck with some um, hardship, so some evenings, open the eyes, oh, nothing there tonight. And even more counterintuitively, there too, one is struck by a sense of blessing. The blessing isn't really about what one gets or doesn't get. The blessing is seen in the attunement to blessing. And then, oh, the blessing isn't about what one gets or doesn't get. The blessing is seen in the attunement to, to blessing, being attuned to, being à l'écoute des bénédictions. So sometimes, so then, oh, no food this evening, but still here. Oh. Heartbeat, breath, oh, rumbling stomach, signs of life, signs of life feel like a blessing. So, walking around today, maybe like you, noticing the sunlight on the river, noticing the food that we're offered and the care and love with which it's prepared, noticing the kind of harmony of people practicing together, working together, living together. Struck many times in the day by, oh, this being a blessing field. The blessing not being based on whether I'm what I'm getting from it, but just struck by that sense of blessing. And it may be, and it's to find out for ourselves, it may be that the attunement to the blessing field in which our life is appearing is actually more profoundly nourishing than the cheaper kind of consumptive happiness that I get from the, like I say, you have to see for yourself, but the sometimes desperate pursuit of pleasant Vedana and the sometimes desperate retreat from unpleasant Vedana. And you might say, well, it's easy to see the Mulan as a blessing field. We might say, if we're caught in that retreat mind, oh, this is a retreat centre, as if it appears apart from the rest of life. People say that to us sometimes. They say they come and they say to us, oh, it's easy for you, those of us who live here, it's easy for you to practice mindfulness because you live in a retreat centre. <laughs> but I live in a town. I work in an office, they say. I work in an office. As if an office can't possibly be a blessing field. I don't see that actually many of us who live here spend much of our time in the office. The, the emails and the bill paying and the French administration and all of that is quite official. <laughs> but 
So not so much based on where we are, but what are we attuned to? Sometimes, particularly in London, which is probably the city I spend most time in, now sometimes on the subway, the, the metro, the tube. The tube doesn't appear at first glance like a blessing field. There's right? a kind of tension sometimes. And more, those of you who haven't been to London, whatever you think of your own subway system, London is m- more weird than that. Right? London has more tension. British people are particularly reluctant to engage with the next dreaded human being along. So sometimes when I'm in the tube in London, I listen to uh, choral music, like uh, Sibelius or uh, uh, what's her name? What's her name? Uh, that uh, mystic Christian. Yes, Yes, exactly. And then the whole tube appears like a blessing field. And the doors open. <laughs> and these just all you know, these angelic beings whoosh out. And new ones whoosh in. And then we just take off to the next station. Wow. So we might ask ourselves, what do I attune to? What do I focus on? What does the lens of my mind shine its light on? Because that's what creates our sense of what life is, how life is unfolding. And as it a rather narrow focus, where most of all of that I can see is me? Or is it a wider focus? An open focus, a receptive focus, that's able to take in the mysterious blessings of life. And of course, and maybe it's uh, standing out to some of you, that I may be that I'm missing out a whole category of experience. Those experiences that don't feel like blessing. Loss, pain, tragedy. Whether personal, the loss of loved ones, no, the difficult uh, conflicts between families or friends, or whether the wider sphere of distress, disharmony uh, that we're exposed to uh, in different ways. One of the Mulan team here, who is from Israel. And of course, at the moment, following the news and the, the intense flaring up of conflict in Israel and Palestine at the moment. And uh, just whether someone has some personal contact to that, like uh, someone here, or just reading in the newspaper about that, or any other world uh, distressing events. And one looks at that situation and sees the pain of people's loss 
and fear and the equally painful incapacity to understand that the so-called others are experiencing exactly the same loss and pain and fear. And one says, well, how, what, what's that got to do with the blessing field? And it's a very good question. How can we reconcile that? It's very nice to sit in the forest and talk about blessings. But how do we reconcile that, this field of blessings, this profound goodness and blessing that we can feel showered by, uh, bathed in, with all that's wrong in the world? War and corruption and an obscene kind of economic disparity. Latest figure I saw yesterday, now 67 people in the world own the same amount of wealth as the lowest 50% of the whole world's population. What kind of blessing is that? And then the ecological precariousness of our situation. The damage that we're causing to air and earth and water and resources. What might be the connection between those two? The deeper our attention goes, the more we feel and recognize and see life's rightness. The more inward, the more subtle, the more still our attention gets, the more, regardless of belief, regardless of idea, the more consciousness recognizes its own nature as fundamentally benevolent, free, wide open, self-created, perfect, perfect. And yet, we're asked to live in this world, we're asked to live in a full way in this world. We can't abide in just some depth of uh, perfect, benevolent, pure, spacious, peaceful abiding. A fullness of life is one that takes into account the depth and the surface. And the more we come to the surface, the more we see some of the tragedy and pain of our world. Most people, all they have is the initial surface impressions. And we tend, like we've been saying, to fill that surface up with me as some protection against the pain of the world. Well, what do I, let me look after me. What do I want? What do I need? Our practice invites us to sense into a depth where we can feel life's blessing. Where we can feel something that's fundamentally right about the very fact of being alive. But we're asked, we might say, to sit down and really discover what's right in order
order to stand up against what's really wrong. A friend of mine just uh, changed her Facebook cover photo to say, do no harm, it's a kind of fundamental Buddhist tenet, do no harm, and underneath it says, but take no shit. <laughs> take, do no harm, faites pas de mal, mais, but take no shit, mais agissez quand même pour le bon. Something like that, no? I think that that paradox, that juxtaposition, keeps our practice on our keeps us on our toes. Keeps our practice from being self-indulgent. My blessings, my peace, my retreat, and it also keeps us from from burning out or becoming overwhelmed by the injustice and the disparity and the corruption and the cruelty that we're exposed to playing out in the world. Our full practice invites us to pay a fullness of attention, depth and surface, blessing and response, to bathe in what's right such that it gives us the capacity and the trust and the clarity to stand up when one needs to. Because goodness knows this world needs us to stand up. And in a way, those who are naturally contemplatives like you, maybe we especially need the contemplatives to stand up. The activists are already standing up. But the activists often need to sit down. (laughs) So I don't know what form that might take in your life. But I want to invite you into feeling and knowing the blessing of life. The blessing, knowing and feeling the blessing of your life. You may not have asked for it. You may not remember how it came into being, but here you are. Look, it feels. It acts. It moves. It has capacity. What are you going to do with it? Okay, friends, I offer these reflections in the hope that they can orientate you both to blessings and to meeting life. Inner and outer, here and there, in its rightness and its wrongness. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash
donate.